Um, okay, so we have Marty on the line and we have Mona, who's on my uh, WhatsApp on my phone. So I'm just going to uh, refer back and forth to the two of you. And, and we've got Lou on the, on the call as well. So I'm going to try something just a little interesting uh, this week. I was on a, a call this week, a training session on how to use something called Google Slides. So I'm going to share my screen, go back and forth, and I want you to tell me what you think of this. Now, Mona, you're not going to be able to see it. So Marty, you the you the sole judge right now of what of what you think about this. Um, so let me just uh, share my screen. And all right, so we are going to be talking this week about uh, a parasha called Dvarim. But just before we begin, I want to tell you that uh, in two weeks' time, I'm going on a trip to Ukraine. Wow. Yeah, it's very, very exciting. And I've never been to Ukraine before. In fact, I've never been to Eastern Europe before. And I'm going with the rabbi of our shul around the corner, Rabbi Ephraim Tversky. And he's been planning this trip for about five or six years. And the reason he wants to go to Ukraine is because his great-grandparents are buried there. And he's never been to, he's never been to their gravesite. Now... If you look at the map that I, or the, the flyer that I have over here, you'll see that uh, up on the top near Chernobyl is a place called Horno Stiple. Horno Stiple is the name of a town, and that's where Rabbi Tversky's great-grandparents come from. And in fact, Rabbi Tversky's grandfather left Hornerstiple and came to America and moved to Milwaukee and set up a community over there. And that's actually where I met Rabbi Tversky many, many years ago when I was traveling around the States visiting my rugby friends. I had a rugby friend in Milwaukee and I met Rabbi Tversky and his father. His father, uh, Rabbi Michal Tversky, is uh, one of the most remarkable people I've ever met in my life. Um, you know, when I use the word Kirov, uh, what I mean by that is the work that I do, uh, which is outreach, Kirov means to bring close. Rabbi Michal Tversky, uh, one of the fathers of Kirov in America, very inspiring person. And his son, um, you know, after many years of study, moved to Chicago. And just as it would happen, the shul is right around the corner from me. So he announced in shul that he was taking this trip it's going to be only for three days. We're leaving on, on Sunday, July the 25th. And we're coming back on, on the Thursday morning. And uh, we're going to be going to visit grave sites. That's basically what we're going to be doing. We're not going to the beach. We're not going touring. We're not going to fancy restaurants. We, we basically are going to, uh, to pray at the, at the grave sites of some great, great people, including 
Rabatosi's great-grandparents, but also Rav Nachman of Breslov. We're going to a place called Uman. Maybe you've heard of Rav Nachman of Breslov. And we're going also to the burial site of the, the what's known as the uh, the founder of you know Hasidism, the Hasidic movement, the Baal Shem Tov. Have you have you ever heard of the Baal Shem Tov? Marty, you, you're nodding your head. You've heard of the Baal yes. Shem Tov. Marty, you've heard of the Baal Shem Tov. I know Lou has to. Yeah. So, you know. Lou is smarter than me. Lou is smarter than you. Okay. So. Well, when it comes to Judaism. Okay. Now, have, have any of you been to Eastern Europe or been to Ukraine in particular? No. I know I've never been to Europe. East Germany is the furthest east I ever got. Wow. When were you in East Germany, Marty? 1973. So I also have never been to this part of the world. And, you know, uh, this Sunday is Tishabov. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, you know, Tishabov today. And, you know, the, the, the marking of Tishabov over the, the last number of years uh, has, has been through uh, various different organizations in this country that have produced videos uh, on different topics. So the Chofetz Chaim Heritage Foundation, which I might have mentioned before, is an organization that, that tries to promote the teachings of a very famous rabbi named the Chofetz Chaim, who taught people how to not speak Losh and horror, not to say bad things about people. And and so they produce a video every year, which is very inspiring. They choose one, you know, particular uh, character trait. Uh, could be anger. It could be unity. It could be, you know, generosity. And and they have a video. But also, what is what has become quite common over the last number of years is there are videos about the Holocaust and the the Orthodox view of the Holocaust and the response, you know, to the Holocaust and what happened, you know, before, during and after the Holocaust. And so I was, I was just reading a book called Witness to History that was uh, put together a number of years ago uh, that details the whole history of the Holocaust from a, an Orthodox Jewish perspective. And I was reading the pages that were talking about Ukraine. And, you know, Ukraine was, the experience in Ukraine by the Jews was quite different than Germany, Poland, Hungary, where Jews were rounded up and then sent to concentration camps. Um, in Ukraine, many, many of the Jews were murdered in, you know, cold blood taken out to, you know, to fields, you know, and and just you know murdered in cold, you know, by a machine gun or you know by raids, and then they kill them. You know, men, women, children, just horrific, horrific, you know, events that happen. And I'm sure that you know we're going to be talking a lot about that when I get there. I've never been to any of the concentration camps, you know, in Germany or Poland. I know that there are lots of trips that go there, but this is certainly going to be a, you know, it's going to be an uplifting experience because when you pray at 
at the at the sight of a of a holy person, you you're not praying to ask him to answer your prayers, but you aren't you're asking that in his merit, in the merit of his of all the good that he did in the world and how he what he did in his life that our prayer should be answered. So what I'm going to do sometime over the next week or two is I'm going to email everyone, you know, on our emailing list and, and uh, I uh, will send it to you as well and ask each of you, if there's anything you want me to pray for, you know, do you want to pray for health or, you know, for uh, someone who, you know that wants to get married or someone who's you know been trying for a long time to have children you know there's there's it's something that we all need to pray for uh mostly you know that we should be healthy that our families should be healthy i pray for you know peace in the world there's there's certainly a lot of <clears throat> trouble in the world right now so I'll I'll send out that email if you want to. You can you can send me a name. It doesn't have to be in Hebrew. It could be in English as well. And I'll pray I'll pray for and say Psalms and make prayers. So we are. Is that like similar to going to the Wailing Wall and inserting a little piece of paper? No, that is too, that's a good question. It does. It, it's fairly similar. Uh, when we go to the when we go to the Khoisal, the Western Wall, we're not praying at any anybody's grave. We it's like going to a synagogue, you know. Uh, yeah, okay. A, right. The temple. We we're going to the holiest spot in the universe, where the Temple Mount stood, and it's a very very, you know, uh, central place in, yeah, but in Jewish solemn, history. It's a solemn place too. Uh, well, it, it, well, it should be a solemn place because Almost it's the like site. Uh, it's I, the I, site. I, it is the site of where the temple was, and it's no longer there. So it's it's been destroyed. But it it is a place where you know there's lots of celebrations that take place. Friday night, davening takes place there. The holidays, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not like going to a cemetery. It's no, not. It's, right. it's, it's, it's not. It's not the same as going to a cemetery. I stand correct. Um, although. What the, the the Talmud says that uh, a, a tzaddik, a righteous person, really doesn't die, and his lips, so to speak, quiver in the grave because when when a person has made an impact in the world, and you hear stories about him, and you recount those stories and try live by the, his example, or you learn the Torah that he taught. So in essence, he is still alive. His, his Torah is alive. His, his good deeds are alive. So that's one of the reasons why you go, you go to people. But you can pray anywhere. You can pray, you can pray at, uh, at the lake. You can pray in your house. You don't have to go to a synagogue. But sometimes you need a little bit of an inspiration. And that's why people go on, on, on trips like this. Now, many of, <clears throat> many of these towns in Europe, uh, were destroyed, and very few, few people survived. And so, what has happened over the over the years since the Holocaust is that certain rabbis have become, uh, uh, you know, leaders of congregations, and they will name themselves after the town that they came from. 
and very often they were the survivors of, you know, they might were survivors themselves uh, or their, their parents were. And so, you know, you'll find, for example, the Horner Stipler Rebbe, that was, that, that was who, you know, Rabbi Tversky's grandparents were, because when they left, they left Horner Stipler, they became the Horner Stipler Rebbe. Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, you know, of Chabad, he came from a town called Lubavitch. That's why that's why it's, that's why he was called the Lubavitcher Rebbe. You have the Gera Rebbe, um, you know, uh, the Belzer Rebbe. They all these are all names of towns that 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 people came from in in Europe. Okay, so that's where I'm going to be going, and I'll let you know more about it. So let's let's start with. You can still see my screen. Let's start with uh, the the book of Deuteronomy, which we're starting this week. So remember, there's five books in the Torah. We are now com we're coming now to the last one, and that means we're coming close to uh, the end of the year. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Simchas Torah, and there's a lot in this in this in this book in the the book of Devarim or Deuteronomy. So if you look at, I just, I just uh, quoted a summary as a summary of this week's Torah portion. It says this week we begin the last of the five books of Moses. The word Devarim literally means words. It's called Deuteronomy from the Greek meaning second law from Deuteros, which means second Nomos means law, perhaps because Moses repeats many of the laws of the Torah to prepare the Jewish people for entering the desert, for entering and living in, uh, uh, and living in the land of Israel. It's the oration of Moses before he died. He reviews the history of the 40 years of wandering the desert. He reviews some of the laws, and then he gives rebuke so that the Jewish people will learn from their mistakes. And... Uh, Giving reproof right before one dies is often the most effective time to offer advice and correction. People are more inclined to pay attention and to take it to heart. So we're going to see a lot of lessons, a lot of things that we can learn in the book of Dvarim, just like with other with other books. But particularly because we're coming to that time of the year, which is Rosh Hashanah, uh, we take it to heart. Okay, so uh, again, Dvarim or Deuteronomy, do you, when you, when you think of the fifth book or any of the books, uh, I'll ask all three of you, do you think of it in the English name or you think it in the Hebrew name? If I were to ask you, what are the five books of, of the Chumash or five books of the Bible? Would you think of Deuteronomy or you think of Devarim? 100% Deuteronomy. And Lou, how about you? Um, you know what? I think of them, I mean, I think I know them both equally well, so I think I would, um, I, I'm not sure that I would uh, associate with one or the other directly, immediately, but I, I, mean, I would recognize Devorim as quickly as I would Deuteronomy. Okay, uh, so, you know, one of the goals that I try and uh, do with my students is try get them to think in Hebrew. Think in, think in, uh, in the language of the Torah. Huh? You know, Deuteronomy is a Greek so. word. Yeah, I would hope so, yeah. It's a Greek word, and the Greeks were not so great to the Jews. And they translated the, the 
or they forced the Jews to translate the Torah into Greek. And I mean, they were very smart people. Uh, so the word Devarim actually means a lot more than the word Deuteronomy does. Uh, but let's, let, so again, Jew means two, and Deuteronomy is the, the name of the book. Okay. Now, <clears throat> I just want to show you one uh, message over here from Dvarim, and then we're going to talk a little bit about Tishaba, which is coming on Sunday. Um, is that there are some mitzvahs, there are some mitzvahs that are in the book of Dvarim that were not presented before this point in time. They were only presented right now just as the Jews are about to go into Israel. And uh, one of the commentators says that the, the reason for this, uh, the reason for this, let me go back to, uh, so you can see me again. The reason, the reason for this is that uh, to impress upon them that they should keep the Torah, that just before they're about to go into Israel, they get told new laws and get re reminded of other laws that uh, they're, they're going into Israel. The Jewish people going to Israel is dependent on how they keep the Torah. If they keep the Torah, they'll stay in Israel. If they don't keep the Torah, they'll be exiled. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, there were certain mitzvahs they didn't keep. And as a result, they were exiled. And we've been in exile for 2,000 years. Even though we came back, even though we came back to Israel, and there's always been Jews in Israel, uh, but we are still in exile. Like I said, we, there's still a, a mosque on, on the place where the third temple you know, is destined to be built. So we are in exile in our own country. We're not safe. We're not at peace with our neighbors. You know, there's a lot of challenges in Israel. Uh, so uh, that's, a, that's a constant theme that we hear throughout the Torah, is that if, if we keep the Torah, then things go well. And if they don't, they, they don't. If we don't keep the Torah, that's something we each have to know as an individual, that we all part, we're all part of the Jewish people, and and to whatever extent we can keep the Torah, we we should, and we should try to. We should never, you know, we should never uh, say that we are, you know, satisfied with our level of observance where we are right now. We should always be trying to do a little bit more at whatever age we are. We all we're always growing. It's not just for young people in college to start learning Torah and to start doing things. Um, so that's a, that's a message for all of us. Okay, so uh, one of the one of the mitzvahs not in this week's Torah portion, but in next week's Torah portion is the mitzvah of learning Torah. So I keep on saying that I wish I had students like you. I wish I had more students like you. Marty and I were just talking a little bit earlier that he hasn't missed a class yet. I can, I can barely say that about any of my you know, students on campus. Now, granted, they, they might be busier and they might not have as much time. But like you we were saying as well, that it really depends on what your priority is. I'm sure Marty's got things to do today at three o'clock. Mona, I'm sure you've got stuff to do. 
but you've decided to take off time to, to learn Torah. And what I would, we were talking a little bit earlier as well, that as we come closer to Rosh Hashanah, we should try and invite more people to come. You know, I, I think this Wednesday at three o'clock is a good time for, you know, the people on the class, <clears throat> but we should really try to find, I mean, like Lou, for example, do you know any other Jews besides Marty? Uh, yes, I think I do. All right, so let me ask you, uh, what, just think of one of them, what would they respond to you if you said, you know, I go to a Torah class once a week, uh, how would you like to join me? What would they say? Um, thanks, but no thanks. Okay, so is there anyone that you can think of? Why is it that just you, besides the fact that, you know, you, Marty's, you know, family, but why do you think people are not interested? Oh, trust me, he's not doing that because we're family. I'll tell you right now. <laughs> well, I'm saying, but that's how you found out about it. Yeah. Um, I, I just think it's... Um... I don't know anybody, um, and quite frankly, very surprised that Marty's done it all this time. Or when he was told me he was doing it, I thought, okay, it's a whim. He'll do it once or twice and not do it anymore. Um, but I don't think I know anybody who's really into studying the Torah or that, you know, that interested in, in how that uh, uh, learning more. Now, I, I say that uh, I do have. I do have a sister and brother-in-law who do attend a lot of, uh, or have in the past, attend lectures related to Jewish history and Jewish religion and Jewish culture and, and that stuff. And um, uh, I even said something to them, and they weren't that interested in, uh, in, in, in coming uh, on board. So um, I, I know it's, it's a tough sell, Rabbi. It's really a tough sell. You know, uh, let me ask Marty, and then I'll come back to you, Lou. Uh, this is not necessarily what I was going to talk about, but it, it, it is important. Uh, Marty, how about you? Do you know any other Jews? Well, geez, I, I think I've brought a lot of Jews, Jewish students. Right. That, that, need, that, you know? That's right. That's so right. A lot of them are gainfully employed or, you know, they're studying their students or whatever, and they don't have the time, you know? I mean, right. What would what would what would they say if you said that every Wednesday at three p.m. you are giving away a million dollars to anybody that comes to a class? Do you think they would then come? Well, I mean, you know what, you know that's kind of ridiculous, but we know what the answer to that is. Okay, so so the, my job, and listen, I agree with you. I agree with you that most people are not interested. And uh, if they were to come because they're offered a million dollars, they're only coming for the money. They're not coming because they want to, they want to learn Torah. Probably um, correct. You know, but we should know that what we are getting for learning Torah is worth much, much more than a million dollars every, every week. The, in fact, you can't, even, you can't even measure the... You can't the, quantify it. You can't quantify the, the reward that you get for learning Torah. It can't, it can't be paid in, in currency. Uh, but the, the question just really is like this. I don't want to be satisfied with saying, well, you know, uh, 
people are not interested. What we've got to try and do is find a way to get people interested. What would it take, Lou? I'm going to turn the question back to you, Mona. I'll ask you, you as well. Now, again, uh, what I'm really trying to do, and Marty has been very good, has been bringing students, young, when I, mean, I say students, college students. Uh, and these are the people that are the most important to reach because they're at critical points in their lives. They're making decisions about what they're going to do in their future, whether they're going to marry Jewish or not, whether, you know, I just saw a report uh, which is quite shocking. Uh, I, I never study, I never believe any statistics that I that I see quoted because I, I I very often find that that they are inaccurate. But I did see something with a, a remarkable percentage of young people today who think that uh, you know Israel is an apartheid state and is. Uh, committing you know genocide on the Palestinian people now that is that is simply because of not being educated never maybe never been to Israel being you know uh, <coughs> in, in, influenced by what they they uh, are being taught on college campuses uh, but I would say the same thing about the Torah as well one of the reasons why they then don't have time and they're too busy is because they don't know that the Torah is the most important and most valuable document that's ever been brought, you know, to humankind and has been the source of uh, teaching not just the Jewish people, but the entire world how to live a, a civilized, never mind a holy life, but just, just a humane way of life. Uh, and, and then there's lessons about all kinds of things, you know, the way I describe it is not not really my analogy is that you know it's it's an owner's manual. God created the world and He gave us the owner manual, the owner's manual. That's the Torah. It's like if you want to if you want to operate any big machine or drive a car or anything, you know, first thing you do is you look at the owner's manual. And if you're going to think that something as complicated as life and parenting and marriage and uh, business. <laughs> and uh, being healthy and being a good person are just things you can just you know wing it and figure it out on your own. You're taking a big chance, you know, because you uh, who's to say that that your ideas are correct or where or that you get where you get them from are, are correct. At least look at the Torah and see what the Torah says, and then compare and see whether you know whether that makes more sense. You know, so I would like to have more people on this call. Uh, let's see if we can, as we get closer to Rosh Hashanah, see if we can find a few more people. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that, that you are on the call. I can't, I don't like giving a class just to myself, uh, but it is unfortunate that this Sunday, which is Tisha B'Av, probably most Jews are not going to be you know, fasting, they're not going to be fasting. They might not even know what Tisha B'Av is altogether. And even if they were told what Tisha B'Av is, they are, they don't see any relevance to their own lives, which is a, a connection. There's zero connection. That's correct. Tisha B'Av and them. That's right. And look, I grew up 
I grew up in South Africa not knowing what Tisha B'Av was, and I was a fairly traditional Jew. I went, you know, I was I grew up reformed, went to temple, but you know, even my friends who went to Orthodox, I don't I don't think I ever even heard of Tisha B'Av. I don't think anybody fasted. Uh, now I know what Tisha B'Av is, and I and I know that uh, it's a it's a day of great sorrow and mourning, and you know, in fact, Tisha B'Av is such a sad day that we're not even allowed to learn Torah on Tisha B'Av. Now you can learn Torah on any other day of the year, including Yom Kippur, but you cannot learn Torah on Tisha B'Av. Now you can learn the laws of Tisha B'Av, and you can you can. Uh, you can learn the sections in the Talmud that talk about the destruction of the temple and you can, uh, you know, watch movies that talk about improving yourself and correcting some of the sins that caused the destruction of the temple, but you're not allowed to do this kind. I could not give a class next Sunday on, on the Torah portion of the week, for example, I could give a class on Tisha B'Av. In fact, there's a, there's an organization called Torah Anytime. Have you ever heard of Torah Anytime? Have I not mentioned it? So Torah Anytime produces hundreds and thousands of, of classes every week. And they have, I think, 60 speakers on Tisha B'Av. So if you go to Torah Anytime, now some of them might be a little bit advanced for you. Uh, you can also go on to h.com. There's some really good lectures um, but I, I, I want to just ask, I'll ask the three of you, do you have any plans for Sunday? Do you, do, are you planning on doing anything on Tisha B'Av? So we'll, Mona, we'll start with you. What are you, what are you doing on Tisha B'Av? I am going to hang out with the Quaifman family because they're observant of the holiday. Oh, very nice. Um, the Cleveland Colwell spunk, they didn't do it last year because of the pandemic. Right. But finally, on Tisha B'Av, they sponsor, I don't know if it's what you just mentioned, a tour anytime. Right. But they sponsor a movie where you go yes. and a, a, a rabbi speaks about the holiday or things that are pertinent to the holiday. And I usually go with my daughter and we hang out the Handle the fat, handle the kids, and uh, uh, that's what we do. Well, good for you, uh, Marty and, and Lou. Do you do anything for Tisha B'Av? Have you ever done anything on Tisha B'Av? I can't think of anything, to be honest with you. Lou, no, how about you? We, I don't do anything special for Tisha B'Av. Okay, so maybe this is a year to start. I mean, you don't you don't have anything in particular that you need to do on Sunday, my guess is. And if you go, if you go onto a website like H.com and you read up some of the things about Tisha B'Av. Now, now the thing about Tisha B'Av is you, uh, you can drive, you can work, you can, you know, make calls, you can answer emails, you can, you can use a computer, uh, but it's a sad day. The, the, the custom is to read the book of Lamentations, which talks about the destruction of the temple, and then to read a series of uh, what's called kinois, uh, 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 like 
poems that are written about some of the most tragic things that have happened in Jewish history, the Inquisition, uh, you know, the pogroms, the, the, uh, the many, many tragedies that have befallen the Jewish people. And this is our, this is our day of mourning. We, learn, we don't learn Torah, not because uh, we are uh, you know, we, we've got too many other things to do. It's that we're so sad and Torah may, is supposed Torah is supposed to make you happy. And if we're sad and we learn Torah, we're going to be happy. So we, that's why we're not allowed to learn Torah because Torah makes a, makes a person happy. Um, so I just shared on the screen over here that uh, the, the very first uh, Tisha B'Av uh, was when the Jewish people cried after they got a report from the spies that Israel that Israel was a bad place and that they shouldn't go into Israel. And God said, I'm, you, you're crying for no reason. I'm going to give you a reason to cry. But also, uh, I think the First World War started on around about Tisha B'Av. The two temples, like I said, were destroyed. I think the expulsion from Spain uh, was connected to, to Tisha B'Av. Uh, one of the things, you know, besides mourning on Tisha B'Av itself, but for the last three weeks, we've had no weddings, no haircuts, no, uh, no music, and it gets more intense. Normally, when you have shiva, it, the, the intensity drops, and... Uh, but not by Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av, it, it gets more and more. This week, for example, you, you don't launder your clothes. You don't eat meat or drink wine in preparation for Tisha B'Av. So all I would suggest to anyone, you know, I'm going to post this on my podcast, but anyone who's listening is, uh, as, as someone, someone once wrote, uh, I would, he said, you know, if you go, to, I, I was in Israel for six Tishabos. And uh, every time I went to the Kosal, I went to the wall and you sit there and you look up and you see, you know, that there's a golden dome and the temple's been destroyed. It's, it's right there in front of your eyes. Why are we mourning? And yet I wasn't able to cry. I, I, I wasn't crying, but there were Yemenite Jews who were sitting on the floor, you know, in the plaza over there. And they were reading prayers and they were crying. They were crying their eyes out because of the temple being destroyed. There are Jews that wake up at midnight every night to mourn the destruction of the temple. Because the reason we are in Chicago and Indianapolis and Cleveland and all over the world, and we're not all in Israel right now with the temple, um, is is because we've lost our connection, not just to the Torah, but to, to God. God is, God is, uh, he wants us, he wants us all in Israel. That's, that's where we should all be. And that's where we all be, will be one day. You know, when Mashiach comes, we'll all go back to Israel and we're not going to, you know, be kicking and screaming. We're going to want to go there because that's, that's where, that's, that's where all Jews want to be deep down inside. That's where we want to be. If we don't want to be, then that's, a sign of my exile. Um, so I'm st I'm standing at the at the coastal at the Western Wall, and I see all these people crying, and I'm not crying. So it's one way I said, if you can't cry, then at least cry 
that you can't cry. Be upset that you can't cry. So I would say to you, Marty and Lou, if you don't feel like you need to do anything on Tisha B'Av, because you don't feel sad about you know, the loss of the temple or you don't know so much about it, then you should be sad about that. The Jewish people for 2,000 years have been mourning Tisha B'Av and, and uh, you should be sad that you don't feel sad about Tisha B'Av. That's something just to, you know, to think about. We have, you know, everybody else is out and about playing on the beach and going to concerts and doing all kinds of things. But we are, we are Jewish people. We're different. We're not, we're not the same as the rest of the world. When we become like the rest of the world, that's, uh, that's one of the greatest tragedies. That's why, you know, there's so much intermarriage because we don't see ourselves as any different to the rest of the world. We're exactly the same. And when Israel... You know, uh, you know, I think part of the reason why so many people are, you know, upset with Israel is because they don't want Israel to be different to the, re to the rest of the world. They want Israel to be exactly the same. And so if they, they want it to be exactly the same, then they get, they get upset when, when, when it, it looks different. So, so that's something just to think about, I would say. Um, now, I'm, what I want to do in the few minutes that I have, I want to play a video. Let me just see if this works. Um, I guess I mentioned yeah, some of the things, some of the laws. Uh, but yes, okay, so here's a video. Can you, let me just ask you, can you can you hear this video, Marty? Let me just pause it for a second. Um, did you did, could you hear that okay or you or the sound wasn't so good? I couldn't hear it. All right, so let me. And there's nothing wrong with his hearing. Right. But did you see the screen? You could see the screen. <laughs> I see the screen now. Okay. So well, let me just... Um, hold on a second. How do I... What I want to do is... Oh, I know what to do. Let me stop sharing for a moment. And then when I share the screen... Um, Uh, I want to um, you know, I always just give me one second I'd, otherwise I'll I'll keep on going. Oh, it should be okay. Look, I'm going to try it one more time. Let me know. Let me know if you can hear it or not. Because um, it should it should work. Uh, and then Mona, I'll just show you the the screen. Okay, let's let's try again. Let me let me try share the screen one more time. Oh, here we go. Okay, now let's try this. Okay. Everyone is familiar with the train transports that carried the Jewish people to destruction in the Second World War. To coordinate the transport of millions of Jews on railways and into death camps with timing so precise that the victims walked out of the boxcars and into the waiting gas chambers required a computer. In the 1940s, however, such a computer did not exist. 
But there was another invention that could do the same job. The IBM punch card sorting system. IBM, primarily through its German subsidiary Deutsche Hollerith Maschinengesellschaft, or Dehomag, produced for Hitler some thousands of these embryonic computers. Card sorting facilities were established throughout Europe and in every major concentration camp. Jews were moved from place to place, gassed or systematically worked to death and their remains, their hair, their gold fillings, their spectacles and their pets were catalogued. All with icy automation. The mechanized slaughter of millions of human beings, an unthinkable task, had become orderly, even banal. The unspeakable had become the unremarkable. After witnessing the trial of Adolf Eichmann in 1963, Hannah Arendt coined a new concept, the banality of evil. Arendt labored to make sense of how people who seem so overwhelmingly ordinary, banal, had been capable of such monstrous deeds. To understand this, however, she need not have looked further than the Torah that was her neglected inheritance. In the book of Eicha, Lamentations, the prophet Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, catalogues with terrible poignancy the destruction of Jerusalem and its people. Eicha is constructed on the pattern of the Alephbet, meaning in the majority of the chapters, the first stanza begins with Aleph, the second with Bet, and so on. Rabbi Yochanan said, why were the Jews at the time of the temple's destruction stricken with the Alephbet? Because they transgressed the Torah that was given through the Alephbet. What did Rabbi Yochanan mean when he said that they were stricken, they were hit by the Alephbet? Did the letters themselves get up and assault them? Also, why did he stress that the Torah was given through the Alephbet? Surely every book in the world is given through an Alephbet. Let us try and understand. Megillat Eicha, the book of Lamentations, abounds with events so grotesque that they defy belief. Rabbi Yochanan's question, why were they stricken with the Alephbet, means, what did they do to deserve that the monstrous and the unspeakable should become part of the natural order of things as ordered as the alphabet? The parallel to the Holocaust is striking. Something completely outside all the boundaries of the natural, something monstrous beyond comprehension, became part and parcel of the natural order of things. No different from organizing a hotel or a factory. If we take those letters and build words that express hatred, racism, intolerance, immorality, if we build a world of selfishness, a world of greed and atheism, then those very letters the order of the world itself could rise against us again. There's no privilege without responsibility. We, the Jewish people, have the privilege of being God's chosen people. Our responsibility is that we must be a light to the nations, that our actions, our thoughts, our words should be illuminated by the keeping and the learning of our Holy Torah. Okay, pretty moving. Um, so you see the connection between 
you know, the Holocaust and, and Tisha B'Av. And I know Marty and Lou, you both, the Holocaust is something that's very personal, you know, to you and your family. So that, that could also be something that, you know, before there was a Holocaust Memorial Day in Israel, there was Tisha B'Av. And, and there were other tragedies as well that happened to the Jewish people. It happens just to be that the Holocaust is, you know, one of the worst and, uh, and the, one of the most recent, but there have been many others. So, um, Rabbi? Yeah. Let me interrupt you. I, I want to ask a question before we run out of time. Yeah, sure. And this may be a little bit uh, more uh, deeper than we, want to, than we have time to talk about today, but yes. um, is there... Um, an undertone here, an undercurrent in this conversation that maybe that the Jew, the German Jews, who were probably the most assimilated Jews at the time, were this is the Holocaust was kind of a uh, you know I'll say punishment, but I don't think that's the right word. But uh, that their assimilation and lack of religious knowledge education following that the Holocaust was mm. one of the uh, repercussions of that? Yeah, you know, I look at it. It is uh, a question. I don't have time, you know, to answer right now. It's a much deeper question. It's yes. Someone, someone uh, once got on a, you know, a train and asked someone, you know, why did, why did God let the Holocaust happen? So, you know, the guy answered, you know, do you want me to answer before the next stop? You know, <laughs> so, so um, the, the, the answer, first of all, I would say that, that I don't really have the, the capability to answer that question, I think, adequately. Uh, but I think most rabbis would say, that we're not prophets today. We know no one is a prophet. We can't, we can't say why it happened. We can't say why it happened. We can't say it was a punishment for this or it was a punishment for that. But we do have precedent in the Torah for other bad things that have happened to the Jewish people. And uh, it, it ranges from, you know, the three cardinal sins of immorality, Immorality, idolatry, and uh, and murder, uh, and and to and we say that the second temple was destroyed because of of sinat uh, chinam, of needless hatred, of speaking lashon horrid, and in many other uh, reasons given in the Talmud that were given by the prophets, and we and and the prophets even predicted it. So, I think the 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 way to look at it is this that just like there are natural laws of history i mean of 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 physics and nature things like gravity you know uh there are spiritual laws as well and one of them is that when we are connected to god then god is connected to us and we are a kind of people that uh, we can't just be what's called parov. We can't just be, you know, uh, like every other nation of the world and, and have people ignore us. The Jews, it makes no sense. The whole anti-Semitism does not make sense from a rational point of view because 
anti-Semites hate us, whether we're rich or poor, whether we, you know, right-wing or left-wing or, you know, communists or capitalists, whether we white or black or any, any color, we, you know, uh, religious or not religious. Anti-Semitism doesn't follow the normal natural rules of history and of, of, uh, of nature, but there are spiritual consequences to, to the things that we do. That even in the Shema, you know, the Shema, which is in the Torah, says, if we keep the Torah, then good things happen. If we don't keep the Torah, bad things happen. Now, what I think that means is that if we think that the world is random, then God, so to speak, says, okay, so then I'm going to let the world be random. And when you let the world be random, then you have all the kinds of things that happen in the world that are happening today, whether it's in Burma or, you know, what, it, what it's called now, or in Haiti or in Afghanistan or anywhere in the world. When people do not have a connection to God and there's, and there's just left to natural uh, the laws of, of nature, then human beings can be very, very cruel. Uh, and I would, you know, what I like to say is not where was God in the Holocaust, where was man in the Holocaust? How did man descend to such evil? Uh, and even today, there's there people that are very evil in the world today. How, did, how can a human being become like that? So I think, I think you know, it's a complicated answer uh assimilation and intermarriage is definitely something that god does not want and so when we do that then we do face consequences whether whether the holocaust was the result of that or it was the result of other things that we did wrong you know uh no one can really say today i don't think people can i don't think people can say it today but I, maybe it's something you can go maybe i you know what i'll give you a suggestion go on to h.com ish.com and what and look at a couple of videos on tishaba and and you'll probably get a better answer than the one that i've just given you but it's definitely something to think about and it's a very good question it's a very, very good question. The, the bottom line is we are, you know, we're suffering as a Jewish people, whether it's Surfside or it's the tragedy in Moron or other tragedies that we've had. You know, uh, we're still faced with a, a country like Iran that wants to make a nuclear weapon and destroy Israel. We are, we are, are, are faced with a lot of dangers. And, and Tisha B'Av is just one day to, to think about it. And to think about what we can each do individually. So coming on a coming every Wednesday is a great thing to do. But we should try to get other people involved, and we should try learn more than what what we've done before. So um, it's just after four. I want to thank the three of you for joining, and have a meaningful Tisha B'Av. Whatever whatever you do, whatever you think about, it's much more than what most Jews are doing in the world. So you should feel. I guess good about that to some extent, and then we'll we'll talk about it next week. Again, uh, next week we're going to meet um, nine thirty in the morning. Nine thirty on Wednesday, and then two weeks after that. Yeah. Right. Next. We next. You were on the phone, and you were right. on the phone. Right. Next week we're going to meet nine thirty on you. Wednesday morning, and then we won't be meeting in the week of the twenty sixth, and then the following week. We again again be meeting at nine thirty, but this time on Friday, the sixth of August. I'll let you. I'll let you know. All right. So I'm going to wish you all a good Shabbos, and. Um, yeah,